not sure where the music is on this device. Hello, everybody. We're getting ready to start connecting through movies and their soundtracks. And there's my co-host right there. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Good evening. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Oh, I'm pretty good. 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 I'm I'm kind of excited about this new thing you showed me today. Oh yeah. Yeah. It seems way easier because I was watching stuff on that OBS and my head was about ready to explode. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've heard that from a lot of people who've used that system to, that uh, it takes a minute to wrap your brain around how the hell it actually works. And it seems sort of like, I don't know, prehistoric, but high tech at the same time. Yeah, <clears throat> this um, Restream is what it's called. Restream. Is that what uh, the Beans and Weenie show uses now? I think that's what he told me. Yeah, it is because he was going to allow me. He's like, can I trust you? Because I know I can't trust him. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, P-S-M-U-S-Y-X-D. Welcome to the program. He goes, I know I can't trust him. So he was going to get me into, he got me into um, their studios. It was funny. I was in the studio, but it wouldn't allow, it was going to make us pay to add me um, so that I could use it. But I'm just like, don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. Um, and, and, I, and I did, I'm pretty sure I figured it out. So we'll just have to play with it. But yeah, it seems pretty cool. Yeah, we'll have a test run on like Sunday or something. I just fuck around with it and yeah. find a little something or whatever and see if we can go from there. Yeah, for sure, it'll be cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, another cool thing. Well, tomorrow with the music, uh, I found a lot of the recordings of individual bands when they played at Tower Records. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be, it's random, all random ones. But, you know, some of them have two or three songs. Some of them don't. I'll just cut them off. But it's pretty cool because it's in, it's the ones from the the different tower records so it'll be kind of cool nice yeah all right well well i am sitting at zero 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 let's see where am i oh this why does it do that um yes it took me to i paused it and it took me out of youtube into um a channel called local now oh beauty uh, yeah, so I don't let me get back um to stupid thing. Oh it's gonna play commercials again. Sorry, it'll let me skip in. Oh, um I okay. So I'm at zero point zero six it says a company name production zero point zero six okay i'll get to zero point zero six
There we go. Okay. One, two, three. Push play. <laughs> Crazy. records now do you guys have them in canada didn't you i had never heard of them before to be honest oh, oh okay uh another funny one to do would be that um that swap meet one that the erodium swap meet what the documentary on the rhodium swap meet that I sent you that had Elgato's brothers in it at the beginning. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm like, what are you talking about? Yes. That one was about music too. His brothers, it was a music video or something, right? Yeah, it was all about the upcoming mixtape culture, like how all the rappers were using different bands and making mixtapes and stuff like that out of stuff and using it for their samples and all that stuff. Okay. We are perfectly in sync now. Oh, awesome. I had to mess around for a minute. I somehow ended up like a second ahead of you. Yeah, I'm. I was thinking today. I can't think of a of a record store around. Like Tower Records anymore. Crazy, huh? 
wall of the drugstore into the empty space next door, a little empty storefront. And he said, we'll put the record cart back there. So we decided to call it our record cart. So he couldn't complain too much because he gets it from free labor. But at the same time, he didn't like the idea that I showed it in school. <laughs> and we realized right off the bat that this was a big deal. I went to my dad. And oh, there's Scooter. Hi, Scooter. Scooter. All kinds of wonderful things I wanted to do. He says, no way. Absolutely no way. Don't bother me. You want this thing, you buy the record store for me, and then you do what you want. But I'm not financing it. I said, all right. He says, fine. It's yours tomorrow. And here's the deal. Scooter, we're going to figure this out by next week. And overnight, <laughs> I was the owner of this thing. <clears throat> Everything you did influenced me. It's... Cooter, tonight we're watching a documentary on Tower Records called All Things Must Pass. It's actually free on YouTube if you want to hop on and join. We can give you the timestamp of where we're at on it when you, if you want to come up. No, we're just perfectionists and he, we wanted to make sure we could play with it um, and, and see if we can get it to just run. So we're going to, yeah. We're going to run a test session on Sunday and see how it yeah. goes first. It was quite a family affair, so my mother would be there. I think she was doing the bookkeeping at that time. My father had a fantasy and a dream and a desire to open up a supermarket of records. He then opened up a record <laughs> store at Watton. It was a tiny store. My wonderful friend who had been doing advertising for the drugstore, Nick Nicholson. He said, well, we're changing the name. Tower Record Markets. He, he, we're going to call it Tower Records, and we're going to use Shell Oil Company colors. Fly by the seat of your pants, says the guy with the most best produced show on all the pod bean. I know. He should see. He has a green room. <laughs> I used to. Did you have a green room? Yeah. When I used to do the, the podcasts on the Rational Rage Network, we did it yeah. on video. So I had um, my podcasting area set up in the basement with a 65-inch TV computer and everything. And then I had chroma key green behind me, and I'd put different backgrounds behind me and stuff. Uh -huh. Yeah, but we didn't do it through anything like that. We did it through, um, shoot, what was the name of that? Where, like, business people, you know, during COVID would have their meetings oh, and stuff. Um, um, oh, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, Scott, yeah, with yeah, Zoom. Zoom. Yeah, we did it all through Zoom. Yeah, I used to have a, a weekly um, video podcast show, too, called Impacted. It was uh, a weekly Impact Wrestling review show. I've been getting commercials for Impact Wrestling on my Roku TV. I was like, what the heck is this? Wow. Look at you. It's, it's up and coming, it seems like, right? Impact Wrestling? Is it the Well, it's been around for like 20 years already, but they are changing stuff around and they're going to be available in more places and platforms now. 
but is it up and coming? It's like before they become big star stars. Um, there, it's a lot totally of them different. are like that, and then but you get some stars like ex WWF people and stuff. Like I got a couple of friends who wrestle with Impact Wrestling, like. So that's why I was really into it. But then uh, in Canada, it's hard to watch it anywhere now. Oh. We used to be able to watch it on Twitch, okay. but then everything changed. <laughs> We're being, we told, being told, shut down, shut up, down, shut up in front, be quiet down front. <laughs> the movie's on. Yeah, that's what was cool is being able to listen to music all day, you know. Welcome, SM29. Yeah, oh, she has it on her. Did you? Did you? You got a commercial? Go, yeah. Did you? No, I don't. I got. I pay for you. Okay. So I get no commercials. Oh, it's surfing safari right now. Oh, yeah. We are watching it separately. Well, we're not in the same house. <laughs> Three ninety nine, four ninety nine for an album. Oh my gosh! Oh! I didn't think about that. <clears throat> I've been across that bridge. That's what they did do a lot of is drinking at Tower Records. Um, they did a lot of drinking. <laughs> So we went down to a drive-in at Columbus and Bay. I could get a nice 
nice greasy breakfast and a lot of coffee. So went in there, and I'm sitting in, in, in their hangover, and I looked across the street, and there was this empty building. And a big sign on it. Hey, Boris. The only thing that looked alive on that property was a telephone booth. I thought there was somebody that came in called Boris. I got it's your cat. <laughs> you just hopped up on my lap. What you doing, Daddy? Luckily, my cousin Ross was a builder, electrical, carpentry. I said, you want to go, I'll go down and fix it up, put some lighting in there, put a new floor in, and paint it. And that was it. He went and did it. There was no way we could, you know, afford a neon sign or anything like that. So we, we opened the store, and it just takes off like, like a rocket. Are you watching it, Scooter? Or are you just listening to us? <laughs> yeah, literally. There's a picture around of me standing there with these people all God, over. That's crazy. All those people. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your head. It was like that. I mean, you know, you walk through the streets of San Francisco and there were people, you know, smoking pot and having little daisies in their hair and hanging out and the film world was packed and, you know, it was a change. People were against the war and that's actually a rare interview david geffen i'm sorry what did you say i said this is actually an extremely rare interview david geffen he doesn't usually do interviews <clears throat> yeah i haven't seen him in i don't ever remember seeing him in a whole lot of anything um did these guys open the retail outlets too um the the just the tower records right retail outlet would you um because he's a jerk i did we were, um, oh they were all um russ okay which one um i'm trying to think of this guy's name russell russell his last name um but then there there's going to be another older man in here and he always got drunk. He, I remember seeing him, and he would always put like a lampshade over his head. You'll see him. Um, oh, okay. It's going through another commercial real quick. Ten seconds. Um, seven. Five. <laughs> okay, it's back on. Um, this... Oh, it, they'll, they'll show his name um yeah there's two guys there's two guys the guy with the the, the um lampshade he hasn't come on yet but he um i think he he was kind of jerky and he was known for being like a womanizer too through the um through the women that worked there you know hey gp man how are you hope you're well Small stores within one, one 
one group. I mean, there was a jazz tour. There was a classical school. Yeah, exactly. Every There was different, the ones that I worked in, there was different room. There was a classical room. There was the jazz room. There was this room. And then the bigger part, so of course, we're like, you know, rock and roll and everything. Yeah, it's Bruce Springsteen talking. He still looks pretty good. Yeah. That mustache. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, he still has it. That's exactly what they would do. That's what we would do. We ours was Tower Records was in the parking lot of a mall and we would walk right over to um round um, table pizza and have pizza as a mirror and then go back to work my dad and russ are first cousins my father actually ran the cafe at the tower drugs and so that's where the connection is with tower drugs so my father actually ended up working at tower records too he did store development for us for many years so when we built new stores my father ross was the person who built those stores so obviously it was easy for me to get a job working at tower when i got out of high school i went to work for the book division as a, a clerk and then advertising. So I ran the advertising for the book division. We ran, went into community relations and bringing in authors, book signings. Virtually everybody in the company started off as a clerk. They become buyers, they become, you know, supervisor types in the, in the store. They become assistant managers and then they become managers. So they learn everything they need to learn. And the, the entire development of Tower Records through the entire period of time that existed was just that kind of a thing. But as a woman, I just said, you know, I'm not even thinking about being a woman. No excuses, no period stuff. I mean, I went, I went to labor twice at Holmes County. 
because it was, you know, I was, I was determined to do this as a book because I was first female hired. I was the first female vice president. I was the first female general manager, vice manager. So I unknowingly had this responsibility to do the kind of the mentor for these women coming up behind me. It isn't what we as a company can teach our employees, but what other employees can teach each other. That family kind of thing is what made the company grow and what made the company successful. Not to this fact. That's my old Tom Sawyer theory of management. You know, let somebody else paint the fence. But, you know, but we had the freedom to do whatever we wanted. I mean, he, he literally gave us these stores with all this product in it and said, okay, show up, do the job right, don't screw me over, and then left us alone. One Thank you. The success of Tower Records, particularly in that period, we had no dress code. I really believe that a lot of people wanted to come to work for us, young people especially, so they wouldn't have to be told how to dress. The people who worked at Tower were musicians in many cases. I got a job at Tower Records because that's the only place that I could get a job with my fucking haircut. That was the truth. <laughs> Oh, we got another one. Another 20 socket commercial. Get more commercials on here than a freaking Tubi. Yeah, no kidding. And it's like they pay like, oh, okay, I'm skip. All right. It's back on. Larry Carp called us and he's got to see this location. It's the best thing in the world. And he goes down there and it was a Madman Muds location where you could get a four track player installed in your car right at the corner of Sunset and Horn. It was 4,000 bucks a month for a land lease. That meant I had to build a building. So my cousin Ross comes to the rescue again, and he says, all right, we'll just build a building on there. I said, okay, do it. It was the first building we built. It was a prefab building. It's still standing 40 years later, 50 years later, whatever it is. It was a concrete slab, and then these metal girders that went up and over, filled oh, in with concrete that's going on sunset. and glass, and uh, an orange tile floor, and some counters. That was it. I laid the floor at Tower Sunset with these two hands. Ross built that building, the entire project, for $75,000. Nobody else could do that. You know, that the whole process of getting the store ready and then getting the racks put together and getting the merchandise put in and so on. Uh, Stan was there from the beginning. I would come home from working all day, which really was being in ditches and laying floors and getting all sweaty. But the nice thing was, you know, record companies were ah, look at that girl. <laughs> and I'd get home and I'd have to do the records. 
Well, I know his guys got this album that, you know, there's a couple of good 12 steps to the good level, even then. You guys have to get fine. the film and watch it. God, look at those prices. It's like insane. I couldn't even coach them. 
third classes when he came in, Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend, there was a constant flow. So nobody ever bothered him. I mean, they had a place there where they could go. And maybe a few people, oh, look over there, there's someone, whatever. But they kind of knew that that was a place where you could hang and not really worry about anybody hassling you. Tuesday mornings, I would be at Star Records at 10 o'clock, uh, 9 o'clock at night. Stored up at night, and they'd let me in. And it was a ritual, and it was a ritual I loved. It was you know, my music center. Yeah, I, I, just, I knew where everything was. Um, and if they didn't have something in one week and they didn't have it in the next week, I told them, I said, you need to, you know, you need to get this in. Well, that was one that used to tell me even during business hours. Did you come out with a limo driver? The limo driver would just stand there with backs and he would come through with his long, long list. Go through the record bins, looking out all the new releases that he'd seen. I mean, Tower of Heaven, those people knew their stuff. They were really on their ball. I mean, they just weren't imported and they have to work in music. They would do both music. And that's what I loved about the Tower. He's got a better hairline now than he did back then. <laughs> Amazing, right? <laughs> Crazy. Bunch <clears throat> the words out because that's where the stars are. It, it really clicked. And then it became the place to go in LA. Yeah, that that Tower Records was really hard. The parking was crazy to get to. Oh, I bet. Yeah, all their signs were yellow with red and black. <laughs> all handmade. Mm-hmm. Smoking while doing his job. Mm-hmm. Back in the day. <laughs> 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 
much time to, because it was such a busy office all night. He couldn't have to get up to work the next morning open the store. Sometimes you even could come to work, say, for an hour and go home with cocktail flu. But there was this thing about showing up, manning up, coming to work. And even if you threw up, you had to show up. You know, the rules were don't smoke dope on the premises. And certainly don't drink on the premises. That didn't mean that once in a while it wasn't a party back there. But, there, you know, you, you do your job during the day. You have a good time doing it. And it, you'd go out and play it the way you wanted to play at night. You know, there were many nights you just came to work and never went to bed for three days. You got it. That's not cocktail flu. That's a lifestyle. When you hit the late 60s, early 70s, you start to get to kind of the flippers and glow era of, of the record industry. And this continued all the way through the, uh, the end of the disco era. Yeah, 70s was still soulful. Cantrafuel. Yes. <laughs> Cantrafuel is a controlled substance that you ingest through a small straw in your nose. <laughs> Seems like a hundred people always end up in the bathroom. Either in a hot tub, you know, probably drinking, maybe smoking a little pot or whatever. We used to do inventories uh, overnight, or we would work late into, you know, doing whatever project we were doing, and we need a hand truck fuel. Which, by the way, we could speed up. Don't even try it. It would be do a hand truck fuel, yeah. You understood you had a, a lot of latitude to do what you wanted, to manage the way $385.34 for hand truck fuel. Wow. But <laughs> We always, we always covered the ships, no matter what. It was always a party atmosphere. It was never work. And you know, Les Solomon kind of personified that in a, in a, in a way. Russ was the free. Russ is Solomon. That's the guy's name I was trying to tell Scooter. That's not the same guy. You'll see the guy with the lampshade head in a minute. He'll be coming up. Oh, I got another Dane commercial. Okay, it's back. He was attracted to many beautiful women, and they were to him. But he always respected the women by the time when they were working. It was one thing. I can remember one night. It was about five in the morning. We'd been partying, and for some reason, the alarm went off. Broadway and Bud Martin at the time, he was the uh, vice president of the company. He shows up and we were actually in fact, oh, that's him. still drinking, so he got all pissed off that night. Bud Martin didn't have the same uh, loose feel for uh, management that Russ did. Bud was the one that was that guru, so to speak, that, that was able to hold this thing called power and this culture that started rolling. And Russ would have never, never dude, yep. together without Bud. There's just no question. It's Bud Martin. He was my dad's accountant, and when Tower opened, he had his little private office, so that became our office. Bud controlled most all the divisions, you know, accounts payable, sales audit, all those areas, and he was, and they had a kind of good advice. I was not a financial manager. Hi, Bella. Welcome. I had no business school training, so I had Thank you. We are watching the film. Um, all things must pass the rise and fall of tower records uh, which is a record store here in the united states well was um and it's free on youtube he was the antithesis of russ was like a 
very carefree, if you will, kind of an entrepreneur who loved music and Bud was actually a business leader. I would make it work by hiring my people to go out and do it. He would make it work because he had a mentor. I suppose there was and a next week we will have it figured out. Going on between Russ and Bud because again, Russ would say, spend the money, get it done. And then Bud would say, no, you can't spend the money. We would go to lunch every day. <clears throat> At lunch, we would argue. He was the keeper of the money, and he wasn't going to let anything go. He and Russ would have battles about Russ wanted to open a store, and Bud said, I don't have any money, and you know, we're going to go to the whorehouse. And I said, Bud, I'm doing it. Figure out how to get it done. But if you get two drinks in, he would be literally hanging from the lampshade, you know what I mean, or swinging on the chandelier. We had a conservative uh, monetary policy, but a liberal social policy. It was really dangerous to go out with him and get drunk. We've been thrown out of a few restaurants, you know. It was just that he was living another life, uh, vaping and things like that, buying splurges, just you know, probably just do normal things you do with money. You know, you spend it. Bud loved cars. He would buy at least one new car every year, sometimes more than one car continuously trading them in. He was also the most random woman chaser in the planet. I mean, he literally had an extra office out of his office where he took women to meet. And he'd hire them as secretaries. And I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was so flamboyantly bad that it had to be a joke. Happen to flame again, younger than spring again, and that sing again, wow. He was straight-laced with a secret life. I think he was intrigued by the idea that we could race along, too, because he would never have done it himself. So I had to kind of lead the charge. He was called the Rust Bus. One of the managers that worked with me took me out on a date um, to the Playboys. Uh, well, it was, the, it was a restaurant in Los Angeles, like the Playboy Bunny it wasn't their mansion it was like a restaurant the playboy money bunny club i don't know it was like a playboy bunny club and i was like oh my gosh and i i bet you it was with tower records money <laughs> um i worked at the record store i started off as a clerk um in the uh on the second floor in the like the merchandise well like the clothing and um at that time it was mostly like kind of punk stuff boots and pants and shirts and stuff and jackets and then i went into the record part and then i went into ticketron when they had ticketron before it was like a ticket master and then i went into selling singles buying and selling the singles so that was fun so it was kind of all over in there <laughs> How do you know I have one of those? <laughs> I just remember going there because I, I mean, I was just right out of high school. I'm like, okay. He's like, I'm going to take you to the steakhouse. And I'm like, where in the heck? I've heard of this place before. Oh, it's another damn commercial. 17 seconds commercial. 
start yours at purdueglobal.edu. I'm sorry, Bam Bam. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> it's back on. We didn't do anything in a formal way. We did on the fly. It was the rest of us. The tower rocket. See? That was the fun part. You never fucking knew what that was going to take you. That lady's mouth cracks me up. Russ Solomon, because he was Tower Records. Welcome, Glova Dacupala. James, welcome. So we went up and we saw this. That's not very nice. You stolen our name. You shouldn't have done that. But at least if we open our wholesale operation here, we'll let us sell you the imported records. And you guys run it. So that's how it started. Russ was always enthusiastic about something new. Everybody else on the record side hated it. They were all, we're an American record company, we sell the old retail in America. They didn't know anything about Japan. Russ didn't have any kind of attitude like that. And they had no desire to do it. They didn't care. It was just one of Russ's little projects. I was just a nobody receiving clerk. And I said, oh, I'll help you out, whatever you want to do. Our job at Tower Broadway was we would pull the records out of stock at Broadway and ship them to Japan. And that's when I first got involved with Russ, because I was a shipping and receiving clerk, making probably five bucks an hour. Russ and I became friends because actually nobody else would help them. This goes on for a few months, and things are not really looking all that good. We don't know quite what's going wrong, but sad but true, they didn't know what they were doing. They, they weren't very good at it. And it was a Friday evening, and probably Russ and I, I know I was in Russ's office, and we'd been drinking kind of peacock broken as you would wind down after a tough day. Somehow the, the subject came up, who am I going to send to Japan? And he asked me that question, am I going to send to Japan? And I said, well, the only guy that's in Japan is me. He goes, what do you mean? You, you, you haven't been here. You're not a store manager. You don't know anything about it. And I said, well, I'm the one that's been doing all this work for Japan. He goes, you think you can do it? I said, sure. He goes, then go. You didn't have to go to 
a whole bunch of people. We make the decision to send our arrestees. He was the worst person to ever take out of everything in my life. I mean, he had the social skills and the will-how to do that. Are you kidding me? But I think the reason that they did is he knew a lot about shipping and receiving. He knew about, you know, he learned about international shipping. We needed somebody to know about how to get products come out of there. I've only been there two and a half years. I saw it as an opportunity to do something. I have no idea what we're doing. I'll be honest with you. We have not a clue. But we did it anyhow. I had literally no idea what to expect. I'd never been to Japan. I had to get a passport. <laughs> we had a, a warehouse in Akasaka, which is like Beverly Hills or Tokyo, for God's sake. We had this little warehouse. And I was supposed to be there for six months. That was my deal. We had six months to go either fix it or close it. Shibuya was a little like Times Square. God, Japan is very overstimulating. <laughs> Looks like it. Shibuya was a very hip, kind of a more of a younger area for stores and kids and people hanging out. The Japanese at that time were very much into the culture of American music. So I called Russ and said, Russ, we're not closing. What do you mention on tonight? Uh, <laughs> something very Canadian. A bacon flavored ruffles. Oh. Doing my best to be quiet. <laughs> You're not bugging me at all. <laughs> Not at all. I just noticed you're being very, you're watching the movie. I need those moose sailors. That was last week. Because he was so cutting edge. You know, he was so hip. He's always taking that next step forward before the forward was there. I saw this location and loved it. Called Russ, and I think he was in Japan within two weeks to look at the location. It took six to eight months of legal wrangling to do this because it hadn't been done before. In Japan, in order to open up a business, you had to have a partner. There was restaurants, shakeys, or pizza parlors, and McDonald's, but those were all franchises. There was no retail establishment in Japan wholly owned by an American company. And it was something nobody else had ever done, for Christ's sake. This is a 3,000-year-old country, and nobody could ever think of another American company opening a retail store without a Japanese partner. Sold well. 
there just happened to literally be at that right place at the right time. You want to call that luck? Call that luck. I think the Japan ones are the only ones still open besides online. Dose, is that you? <laughs> How the hell are you? It's not my boyfriend. <laughs> Well, that's good because shit doesn't talk. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the real dose because the fake dose is sitting here online with you. Oh. <laughs> Put your air. We are watching <laughs> All Things Must Pass, The Rise and Fall of Tower Records. Hey, Lonnie. I mean, I could turn mine up, but then that's going to totally screw you up. Oh, commercial. Three, two, one. I'm back. Next week, guys, it'll be totally different. It's just amazing that albums are now coming back and they're like 30 plus dollars a piece and you, you saw the signs on these three dollars and 55 cents or something crazy like that it's insane that's what one of the rooms that i worked in was in the singles i bought that's where I got to go see meet Cindy Lauper was when I worked in was the buyer and seller in the singles. Um, no, we have not. And I'll write it down. Big Lombowski. The Big Lebowski. It's a good movie. It's got some good tunes in it as well. My son was actually uh, and, uh, <laughs> the big Lebowski for Halloween a few years ago. Which one? Austin? Yeah. Aww. 
That's awesome. I have to see it now. And and there's one in New York that's really big. Probably five hundred people. And out of the blue, I get an invitation to go to the Christmas party at my my, my home. And I was of course happy about that. And I thought, do I really want to? No, well, wait. People looking at me feeling sorry, but I found it better to go. No, it wasn't. There was a guy that used to come in on Podbean with the profile picture of the Big Lebowski. And shoulder to shoulder. Was that you? No. <laughs> you know who it was. <laughs> no, no, I'm laughing at Dose. He said, does he have a oh. carpet that ties the room so, together? <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's a whole thing over a carpet, yeah. I probably should have been. But hi, thanks for inviting me, whatever. And uh, he leaned over to me and he said... Oh, it was you. <laughs> See, that's what I liked about Tower Records and it that, you know, how they've been saying from the beginning, all of these guys, a lot of them had nothing in common, but that they liked music and they all started as clerks and moved on up. And that's how they promoted people. You worked your way up. That's how life was back in the day, too, though. You know, like you'd start yeah. off as a shipper and then you're in the whatever, and then the next mm-hmm. thing you know, you're a manager. Yeah. And now it's all about, oh, I won't even go there. Instant fast tracking. Yeah. Yep. You were a troublemaker, Doss, weren't you? You were just a troll trying to start all kinds of problems you were dose is the best troll i heard all about you <laughs> and caps just looks like a fucking troll until we got into some of the larger markets on the East Coast, then we started playing national TV for ads, so we became a national brand. But you had to have the credibility in the larger market. I, I was just always nice to everybody, suffer. especially Joe's, because eight, some people didn't like him. Our own <laughs> At all. <laughs> Rachi was just working there as one of the advertising people, the assistants. Rachi also was one of these thinkers. And he came to me one day and said, we ought to have a magazine for Tower. I've got a good idea now. <laughs> I said, great, let's do it. Working with Chris, we kind of hammered out this way that the magazine would exist. And when Pulse. people were advertising, it didn't get a sale price in the store, positioning in Iraq, just the things that really kind of gave it the teeth. Pulse was another credibility thing for us. We could not only sell music, but we could write about it. We could communicate about it. I mean, there was nothing and no one, with the exception of your rock fanzines and small columns and maybe a few of the major newspapers that were interested in what you were doing. There weren't that many people interested in what 25-year-old kids were doing in their music. So you made your record. You gave a few interviews to music publications and some daily newspapers. That was all you, that was all there was to do. It was a very credible music magazine, and it was a national music magazine because of all the markets we were in. 
and then the magazine grew, and it was a really good magazine. But it was a great idea. And I remember him saying more than once, just don't lose too much money. You know, you try to make something. That was the first time that he really focused on an idea I had. You listen to the people who had ideas. The kids in the store who I say invented all kinds of ideas. Everything we ever did were invented by the kids in the store. The art on the walls, the way they displayed things, their attitude about what to buy and what not to buy. That was all, all things that were happening at the store level. That's why it was such a cool place to, to work. We adopted it, brought it in and used it. So we're using their creative and going, wow, this is interesting. So come on, it's too dark. I'm like, no, it's not. It's fun. It's no music, no life. And the sort of Snoopy Peanuts kind of script. I'm going, this is very cool. It was famous for the record cover paintings that was jammed on its walls outside. But that became prominent. All of a sudden, it became the norm for anywhere we had windows. They would expect that that's they're going to put some displays. He was inspired <laughs> to have your album part of that big mural out there, you know. I mean, the board thing was really cool. Then we took it inside where we had an art department, it was all foam floor. It wasn't just people stapling albums up. People went to great lengths, like they get that weird foam cardboard stuff and make a baby, and then there's an actual dog with a little dangling in front of it, and it looks like water behind it, you know, and when you would see people go to that much trouble, for you, for your band, we were just shocked, like, we're just shocked. I think that really influenced and enhanced the experience that people had when they came to the store. Bye, Dos, thank you for coming in. Have a good night, Dos. was physically exciting. They branded made those red and yellow logos and signs and turned the idea that this was your local record store into a national thing. Tower was growing at a faster and faster rate, was becoming more successful, and was becoming more known or renowned. The employees at Tower felt proud about that. We helped each other make it work. We tried to get the person below us promoted so that they could move on. I became a store manager. I became the regional director. I became vice president of operations for the USA. I became vice president and director of in-store design and development. When we were really getting into an expansion mode, it was quite a transition from you know being store-centric to you know having to look at the whole picture. But all those years weren't wonderful years. I only remember this because I was a young guy. I actually have always some people off for the first time. 79 and 81 and like 83 were the years where the record companies were actually laying people off. Rock and roll, which had been so exciting just 10 or 15 or 20 years earlier, kind of got to the point where it was a little bit stagnant. The record labels, many of them, had put all their eggs into the disco basket. A lot of radio stations immediately changed formats. In every big city, there were two or three disco stations that replaced other formats of radio. And I think the disco didn't sell it well. There were a lot of layoffs. Record sales went way, way down. And there were some in the industry that were really worried. It was all disco. And then disco just one day crashed. You wound up having these DJs to get attention take advantage of it. Disco sucks, man. And so there was a recession. Three things happened that pulled the music industry out of its, its recession, out of its doldrums. One thing was MTV. Turn it on, leave it on. Oh, that's funny. The first two people that I met. Mm -hmm. 
God, I used to love MTV when it was music videos. We never had MTV in Canada. Really? I was going to ask. I'm like, no, that's a silly question. We had um, the Canadian version was called Much Music. And it was just videos too? Mm -hmm. Like VJs? Yep. Yeah. It's funny, a lot of the VJs from the 80s and 90s and stuff went on to be in like at major news broadcasting channels and stuff like that after. Justin hated you then. He was actually on much music a lot back in the day. Oh really? Uh huh. As a as an artist. <clears throat> well, see, he was the son of the prime minister, right? So he was like uh -huh. popular. But Justin Trudeau was like the party boy. He was actually almost a cool guy back in the days. Oh. Yeah, the blackface. Oh, but I remember the CDs when they came in those little, those, the ones when you, the one that she was showing, like the portable ones you were supposed to be able to go jogging with, and they're like, nope, they skip when you jog. He was like a goofy party girl. No, that was his mother. Justin Trudeau's mother was a groupy party girl. Oh. Selling more. What's not to like? 
Our stores are bigger, they're better stocked, they have more knowledgeable people, the competition will take care of itself. That's it, Russ. We can go open some more stores now. Russ had a serious amount of power, I mean, for a long time. I mean, there were always a lot of record shows. The tower was, I think, the most powerful one for a long period of time. Recently, Tower Records was again recognized as U.S. Music Retailer of the Year by NARM, the National Association of Recording Merchandisers. This makes the fourth time the Tower has received this prestigious award. The honor was bestowed in recognition of Tower's high-profile image, marketing and merchandising strength, and fiscal responsibility. Starting in 1984, you had Michael Jackson, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, and then you had the hair metal bands, and then you had the grunge era, and then you had Hootie and the Blowfish, and then you had this entire period, 84 to 2000, it's no coincidence that hip-hop had its booming growth during this period. Then you had boy bands, and Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera, and, and all these acts that took advantage of teen pop and stuff that was big. So it was just one bomb exploding after another in, in music. Tower was the center of it all. If they're paying by credit card, the register sets the charge in a matter of seconds. You make that kind of money, you want to hang on to it. Tower! Tower again! And again! All the music is stuck in this completely warped galaxy, but then Tower goes and gets it back and opens stores all over your planet. Tower Records. More music for less money. It was just overwhelmingly big. Everybody knew the logo, everybody knew the red and yellow bag. In the digital revolution came, you know, the record business jumped on CDs, not realizing what they were what they were really causing their own demise. But I definitely think that Tower was optimistic and they felt like the good times would last for a good long time and they expanded during this period. Well by the early nineties we were having pretty good success in our foreign operations. Again it was driven by Japan, which was extremely profitable maybe more so than the domestic company in America. We moved the old Japan store to this new Japan store, this eight-story building, 84,000 feet. Each floor was a segmented store, and the place was doing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. I mean, it was a huge success. <laughs> you couldn't stop. It gave us a lot of confidence. Somebody came from England and said, why don't you have a store in England? Howdy, I'm Russ Allen. I want to take this opportunity to welcome all of you to our little spot in Central London, and I hope you're going to have a great time tonight seeing what is tonight the marriage of Wembley and Tower. Two great names in entertainment. So drink up and have a great time. I'm good. And then in Japan, the guy who's. I told you, they're always drinking. <laughs> always drinking. Taiwan to make a partnership for Hong Kong and Taiwan and Singapore. The company was really getting big. We were doing business on a very high level, but you never escape this thing of, oh, it's like I'm sitting in an expat bar at two o'clock in the morning in Taipei, you know, and and I'm from Sacramento. How cool is this? Moving to countries outside of Japan was a risk. They expanded in Latin America and Asia and, and all over the place. Oh, I got a commercial. Four seconds. Okay, it's back. No music, no life. We were becoming famous worldwide, and we enjoyed that. So I suppose it stroked our egos to a certain point. It's fucking awesome. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, my 
my gosh. I mean, it was it was a mind blow. It was really fun. We got to know more about music going into Mexico City, going into Colombia and Buenos Aires. It allowed us to know a lot more about Latin music. But we weren't really successful in any of the other countries we went into. Therein lies the tale. You know, sometimes I guess one can get a little too too big for their bridges, like I said. There was this culture that was growing that, you know, wherever we wanted to put a store, you know, build it and they will come fill the dreams bullshit. There was no due diligence for Christ's sake done on on Buenos Aires or Mexico City. I've said borrow all that damn money. I'm as guilty about that as anybody else. I'm stupid for saying yes to partnerships in Argentina, even though I didn't totally believe in them. Bud did not want the company to go into so much debt. He would succumb to the pressure that was put on him, although he was happy enough, especially because he was making a lot of money personally. If you look at the music industry at any given point during that period from 84 to 2000, you wouldn't really go, oh no, there's, there's choppy waters on the horizon. Ross, what about these new technologies like the mini disc, DCC, or beaming music and video right into my house? Are my CDs history and will your inventory of power become obsolete? There's so many new technologies. We simply get involved. We get involved with them at the early part of their development and we grow with them, or when they die, we throw them out like DAT. Ah, as for the whole concept of beaming something into one's home, that may come along someday, that's for sure, but it will come along over a long period of time, we'll be able to deal with it, change our, our focus, and change the way we do business, to deal with the situation as it really is. As far as your CD collection, or our CD inventory for that matter, it's gonna be around for a long, long time, believe me. You look back on all your mistakes, and you make them, that's for sure. There's it Mike. Just, it catches up <laughs> Yeah, I know you're blonde. You hi, Mike. Yeah, hi, Cole. And when it catches up with you, then, then it's too late to do anything about it. The business had grown significantly. It was an international business. Sales were running close to a billion dollars by that time. And what the accountant was possibly a little bit over his head. We had to hire a guy from the outside, Melvin and Lee Searson. Because I had complete trust in Bud, I had also complete trust with Lee. By the early 1990s, the relationship between Bud and Russ had become a little bit strained. Bud stopped going to the, the daily lunches. They were giving him ulcers. Bud's job became less and less important. He finally had to leave. So it was around 1995 that Bud decided to retire. Russ will, even to this day, say that you know that's one of the things that went wrong when, when Bud, you know, was kind of eased out. I think Bud was that kind of person that knows there's something's going to happen to the company. When Bud left, he took over as the CFO. I'm developing the company and expanding the company. He's managing the money. And it was a surprise to me that I couldn't use all that money to open new stores. He was put on a mission to go out and get money by tower selling bonds. Well, it made it easier for tower to borrow more money. Things became much more tense. We had pressure from creditors bondholders, banks, and there was pressure in business in general. A perfect storm of events was developing in the music industry as a whole.
we've gone from vinyl singles to cassette singles to CD singles, but we cut that out because we felt like, rightfully so, why were we letting people buy the best song off an album? Let's just not make that available. And they'll have to buy the album. And at that day and time, it was true. And eventually, I think people were kind of inclined to follow it. Like, okay, I like a couple of Britney Spears songs, but do I want, really want to buy her whole record for $18? You know, it was the peak of that. There was no need for a whole generation of kids to even go in a record store to get their music. If you haven't got kids coming into record stores to buy records, you've lost a lot. But then a whole bunch of other things started to happen. Uh, you had all these mass merchants getting into the music business, and there were horrible, horrible price wars. Everybody and their brother started selling CDs. You know, Target, Walmart, all these companies, and they would sell them for cost. What, what that took away from them. I was just going to say, did you fall asleep? No, no. I just snuck for a cigarette. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're so quick. And I thought, oh, sometimes he says he falls asleep like I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real reason why I munch on chips rather slowly while we're watching movies. What was happening? What they should have done is made the records cheaper. They could have. They didn't. And I remember vividly the very first what is an mp3 you know that we ever did i wasn't depressed the first time i saw napster actually i remember it very clearly and i went on and there were 800,000 people on it and i thought wow this is unbelievable this is fantastic i wasn't thinking that those 800,000 people were stealing from me it was the most amazing piece of software in history i mean what about Columbia House? Where I don't know if you guys had that in the States, but up here for a penny, you can get like 20 CDs. Oh, yeah, I used to do that. <laughs> I used to do that. And you had to buy so many at the, you bought so many at regular price, and then you got so many, like every month you could get, yeah, a whole bunch of them for a penny. And mm -hmm. all different kinds of, you. yeah, oh my gosh. Yep, I used to do that. I loved it. That's a problem. How do you compete with that? You know, if you could get Coca-Cola for free from your faucet, you wouldn't buy a bottle of Coca-Cola. On one hand, you go, okay, well, what's the big deal? Singles are cheap. We don't really need that much money anyway. On the other hand, when Napster came out, the big issue was, how do you compete with free? On one hand, you have all these people who are stealing music for free. On the other hand, we have this $18 CD, which is our main product not really a balance, but if you have a single, if you have a 99 cent single or a cheap way, an alternative way of selling music, that's a little easier to compete with free. And we, of course, saw that later because iTunes kicked in and uh, songs cost 99 cents and music for everybody. They think music is available on the computer. They'll Google it and they think they can just get it for free. And that's, that was something that was discussed ad nauseum with Russ and Tower. He believed that there would always be people wanting to buy records collection, a library, if you will, a product. Those people died off and went away, and the, the generation that followed believes that, you know, having an iPad, that's where, that's your music collection. That, you know, that's what it is today, and that's the, that's the truth. There's no records. Go buy a record, you nuts. And so that kind of started even... Is that coming back in Canada? Uh, for some people, yeah. I don't own a tangible record album of any sort anymore, to be honest. Me either. My I'm problem was I had a one terabyte hard drive with so much music on it, but it crashed last year and I lost everything. Oh. Oh. I can't say that that is true or not true, but the 
Yeah, the albums are starting to come back at like, well, like I said, there's no record stores really, but Walmart or Tower, um, uh, Target you could go to and they're starting to have a little teeny, teeny section with some albums in there. Oh, I got a commercial. Uh, I think I... Okay, it's back on. <laughs> he was the, the guy that took care of business. He got older and sicker, so he had an illness which he had for a long time. 
she had not really told anybody by the early 90s, but he was suffering from a debilitating illness, uh, leukemia, which unbeknownst to most of us, he had had for uh, maybe 15 years. He had a good life. It was sad at the end when he, when he, he, didn't, he didn't have much at all to speak of. It was only a couple of years later that he, he passed away. Anyway, I have a couple things I want to say about that. I knew we were not getting this out right. <laughs> um, I was going to do this. He really taught all of us, um, us young kids who really know about his presence to um, take a look at what we were doing with our, um, with our lives as far as our morality was concerned. Uh, he was a wonderful teacher to us. He was an incredible sexist kid, but at the same time, he was not entirely fair. So after that, I only have one thing more to say. I can't do that with people. Sorry. Uh, okay. But baby, this one's for you. <laughs> but, uh, but of all people was making things possible to do. You know, after all of those, you know, 26 years, probably the last three years were spent feeling that the, the, the whole idea of Tower Records was not going to be around much longer. At the end, for me, it was just a matter of, of when. When the bank came in, we knew that things were going to change. It was, it was, my, my father, when the bank started putting pressure on the company, Thank and you, Mike. That we hire a restructuring officer to run the company, my father became very upset. The bank broke me that news. I said, I don't think it's a good idea. They said, well, this is your choice. You either bring in new management or we don't loan you the money. So he said, okay, we need the money. We have to have the money or we can't operate at all. So okay, we'll, we'll try to bring in new management. Mike goes down to hire this woman, Betsy Burton. He wants to hire her. Oh, I got a new body for it. I think with Betsy. I think her idea was to spend all this marketing money on branding. And you're just going, why are you going to spend this money on branding? We're already established as a brand. What you need is retail ads. You need ads that are going to move product. You need to move product. That's the bottom line. And then she closed down Pulse magazine. Losing Pulse, firing 30 or 40 employees was heartbreaking. If I ever came close to wanting to kill somebody with my hands, it was her. We closed our print shop, I believe, and to lose 30 employees. We closed our sign shop and lost 30 employees. We had to make cuts every place. We had to fire people. And that is where you just have the two feelings of, I'm so good, I'm not going to be gone, I hope. The restructuring officers were coming in and saying, look, you got to cut your expenses because you don't have any money. In a way, they were saying the same thing that Bud was saying for the last four decades. You know, I had one side of my mouth sit with him and try to figure out growing the company and how to get out of this mess, and the other side of my mouth deal with these guys that want to just tear everything down. They don't understand the product. They don't understand the people that work for the company. They don't understand the systems. They don't understand anything. The seeds of failure are built into them. And it can't last.
He basically fought the restructuring officers. There were numerous of them that came in. And, and I remember so vividly going to the first meeting. I talked to them and I say, well, now I'm on the board and I've still got the officially the chairman of the company. I mean, that's a, a chairman without a portfolio. I said, what do you want me to do? Who's going to be the visionary? Who's going to think about what we should be doing in this industry in the future? And this idiot woman says to me, we don't need a vision. Oh, I got another damn commercial. This one's 29, 27 minutes, seconds long. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to look into paying for this. It's your comeback. And it's not even a full commercial. It's like they take like little clips of commercials. It's weird. It's already been like four different commercials. Okay. It's back now. Control anything. So what was I to do? Just shake my head and walk off. Betsy had interviewed the group and interviewed, if I remember, most of us individually who were in senior management. So we knew what was going on. And Mike Solomon was promoted to um, president, and he had to do what these bank guys wanted to do. And so everything just kind of stopped. Somebody who was an outsider was taken it away from us. I was caught in the middle, really. We need to be thoughtful. Basically, we need to pay our debt. But to do that, we basically had to cut the heart out of the company. In 2004, they got rid of me and Dee and, and Mark Pearson. I guess they decided, I think then, to liquidate the company. They didn't say it. And it took them a few, a, a few years to do it. But they were no longer interested in trying to either grow the company or save the company, in my opinion. They told us and instructed us what we had to do to cut costs, save money, increase profits if we could, or at least decrease the losses. So if we can fire someone making 200000 we can hire someone making 100000 That was in Mike Solomon's office with me and a lady we called Betty Coop. And you know why you're there. It's not a secret. I told him and Betty, you guys are the ones who shouldn't be here. You guys, people should be fired, not me. Firing people that you had hired 30 years ago, people that, you know, that, you know, were started as clerks and were now regional managers or VPs or whatever, you know, it's just, you know, awful. Family and I were up in Lake Tahoe. We're having a drink after doing some gambling at the bar. And out of the blue, she says, oh, Bob, by the way, uh, we're restructuring the company. We need to structure the company because of growth or whatever. And I was just like, stop. Because it was, I mean, this little private setting. So I'm hammering down some scotches at that point. The day Heidi fired me, you know, she called me in one day and she says, Rudy, this is hard for me to say, but I, I want a divorce. But it was really hard. And I knew it was hard for her as well as it was for me, you know. And so, I went to rest and said, now what the fuck we're going to do with these people like that? He never fired anybody in his life, let alone his whole executive committee, for Christ's sakes. It's just not who he was. He took me out to lunch, actually, called me and said, I'm going to lunch, and I thought, this is not voting well. 
God doesn't call you and ask you to lunch. This is not, you know, and he was in tears. I mean, it was, it was as hard for him as it was for me. It was probably harder. I felt, I felt worse for him. Russ and I are cousins, and um, Mike Solomon, who was also the CEO at one time, and I are cousins. And to see family members just stand aside, too, was um, harder than just losing a 30-year career. And at the end of 30 years, I got a lunch. Just shortly after out of the company. He went to wear it, but you know. And he says, Bob, thank you. We love you, Hunter. And uh, good week to him. I wish probably that I could say there was more survivor's guilt. But um, there was a lot of relief too. And then as, <laughs> as more layoffs happened, yeah. Somebody's breathing hard. I guess. I'm not. Even, I'm barely even. I'm just chilling right out. I'm like I play bam bam. <laughs> Oh, my uh, microphone's pointing up at my nose. <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't. He's closing his last retail record store. It's the end of the line for an icon that puts Sacramento on the map. One of several chains closing its stores nationwide. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be funny. Yeah. Caps does that occasionally. Oh, I can see that.
be a lot happier if I was sitting here and it was filled with records and music was playing and people running around and shopping. But then again, that's the past. There's no way you can change that. Let's think about what to do in the future. Oh, another commercial. This one's only, it's going to be one second. Let's see. There we go. It's back on. Yeah, and I, and I looked it up, and Japan is the only one still open. It was Dave Grohl. It was Dave Grohl, right? Yes, Dave Grohl, yeah. <clears throat> Foo Fighters, Nirvana. I'm as happy as can be because it just proves that it can be done. Because they're doing basically the same thing we did all along. stores they listened to music it was an experience going into a store and browsing through tens of thousands of records it was here we were part of it we all fell in love and then it went away having a job doesn't have to be tedious it doesn't have to be boring it doesn't have to be a place that you hate to go every day. yeah but after you spend 30 years in an environment like that where the hell do you go yeah yeah exactly and that family ideal stuck with everybody up till the end wasn't a job. It was just a way of life. Who knew what they wanted to give to the world or offer to the world, and us spending 30 years both following and trying to refine that vision. We were part of people's lives because music was part of people's lives. Although the last rec Tower Records store in the United States closed on December 21st, 2006, Russ Solomon's creation lives on. There are currently 85 locations worldwide. It was the music that was meaningful to young people's lives. To everybody, really, but mostly young people. And we were how they got it. What's the matter? 
Tom Hanks kid. I was wondering who that was. I see what you mean though, but by this movie being about like Tower Records, there really wasn't that much music in the movie. No. Yeah, you would think that there would have been more through even just little bits and pieces throughout it. It there really wasn't. Um, but it was good, you know, it was nostalgic for me, um, to, it was like living it again. And, and it's so true. Everything that they did was just, and then all of a sudden it's just gone. <laughs> but, yep. Yep. So tomorrow, um, uh, I will be playing, uh, the music. I found a lot of live performances that were done at tower, at different tower records. Um, I'm going to be doing that. And then other people that came in and signed, I'll just be playing some music by them. So that'll be tomorrow morning at 7.45 a.m. Mountain Standard Time on the Tito Joe um, podcast morning show. So, yes, thank you all for being here. Everybody that is still in here, I can't see on this new device. I don't know which where it's showing who actually is still in here. I'm not sure but... who's in here. It says there's still five people. Yeah. Here's a question so, for you, though. Your tower yeah. records that you worked at, what is it now? Um, honestly, I don't even know. I'd have to, I'd have to, I almost said I would have to call my mom and ask her. I'd have to call my friend Tammy and ask her and see if they tore it down. Um, because it was a freestanding building, like in the parking lot of, uh, of a mall. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure they probably tore it down, but I don't know. I'd have to call and ask her and Hmm. see what it turned into. You could probably even, uh, Google earth it. Oh, didn't think about that. Google Earth, zoom right in, see what it's it's at that address. If you remember yeah. the address, still that is. But oh, yeah, I don't know. I I could figure it out. <laughs> That's what but. I do sometimes. I Google some things, and then I like Google Earth it, and I like virtually walk down the street and be like, "Well, that looks different," and stuff like that. So. Yeah, it's a trip to see things like that when you could <laughs> see it. You could see virtually see it. Yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely, it's like being there. But thank you guys for everybody who's in here right now and who's been with us this whole time. We really appreciate it. Next week, we will have it figured out. We're going to do a test run and um, we'll be able to um, show the film and have people be able to um, watch it with us. So, oh, you too, Mike. Thank you for coming in. Love you too. Show up tomorrow, Blondie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bam Bam, so much. I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was definitely interesting. Yeah. Like I said, I don't recall us having any of them around here. There might have been one, like, if there was one in Canada, it would be in a place like a Vancouver or Toronto or something like that. Oh, okay. It's not really my, my neck of the woods. Oh, further away. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Eh? Yes. Eh? eh? <laughs> hey, Scooter, if you're still in here, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Eh? There he is. <laughs> well, we're going to leave the show like, like she always does. Oh. Oh.
be the reason someone smiles today. Let your smile change the world, but don't let the world change your smile. And that just really pissed off my dog when I did that. <laughs> he did not like that high pitch one. <laughs> all right, guys. Love you. Have a great night, everybody. See you all in the morning at the show. <laughs> Bye.